Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am so grateful that you are joining me today for an interview with my new friend, Sally Helgeson. And Sally is a celebrated author, international speaker, and gold standard women's leadership expert. Her latest book, How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job, was co-authored with coaching legend Marshall Goldsmith, and it examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. As a speaker and consultant, Sally's mission has always been twofold. She helps women to recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths in order to enhance their careers and increase their value to their organizations. And she works with senior leaders in companies and partnership firms to instill more inclusive practices at the highest levels. Sally is author of several books and uh, has worked with many companies around the world. And she lives in Chatham, New York, up in the Hudson Valley. Sally, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Thank you, Andy. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, really nice to have you on. I am just uh, so impressed with all of the work that you've done. Uh, You've written many books. And of course, this latest one, co-authoring a book with Marshall Goldsmith, who is absolutely a coaching legend. Yes. And I would love to know how that came about, but maybe we can start with a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are today. Yes. Well, Andy, just briefly, uh, in the 1980s, I was working in corporate communications and I was working for some excellent companies, but none of them seemed to have a clue as to how to use the talents of the women uh, that were in them, myself included. And all the emphasis back then was on of what women, how women needed to change and adapt. You know, it was the bow tie era and training to talk about football and things right. like that. So I thought, let's look at what women could contribute. And so I decided to study some of America's uh, most successful women leaders. Uh, that book became The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership. And I think because it was the first book that focused on what women had to contribute, rather than how they needed to change and adapt. It became very successful and companies started bringing me in and um, I just stuck with it. That book was published in 1990. 
So for the last 30 years, I have been working with a variety of, of companies, uh, you know, from Kuala Lumpur to Tromso, Norway, above the Arctic Circle, to help them uh, facilitate leadership excellence among women, and then more recently, also help organizations and male leaders become more effective with women. Awesome. I always love doing these podcast videos, interviews when someone can uh, take their 30 years of experience down to like two sentences. Uh, yeah, I published a book in 1990 and I've been traveling the world ever since then. <laughs> helping people. That's basically my story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. Okay. I want to go back to that because like you said, when you published this first book, The Female Advantage, it was about what women contribute and not how women can conform to this men's world of business. I imagine it was a radical idea for some people. Was it difficult to do that? Did you get pushback or was it like you were confident all the way? <laughs> oh boy, did I get pushback. <laughs> yes, uh, I got pushback from women. You're not helping. You know, we need to adapt to what's out there, especially a lot of women who are in the academic world, the work that was going on then. And then companies were pretty baffled by it. You know, my idea in writing The Female Advantage is I was intending to write it for companies so they'd have an idea of how to be better at leading and, and managing their women and developing their potential for their uh, to use their talent. And uh, in fact, companies in 1990 were not interested in this topic, but women were. And that's what really got it uh, that's what got it started. So for me, I have watched such an evolution over these 30 years. So when people say things like, oh, well, you know, it, it's not changing, it hasn't changed. I've seen it. And uh, I've been a real witness and had a front row seat. Yeah, I, I always try to keep that in mind. I mean, I'm very into, you know, equality and diversity and inclusion and all of those things in the working world and, and life. And you know, it's sometimes you can get frustrated about where things are, but things have changed a lot. Oh, they have over the years. Okay. From you know, you writing that first book in 1990 and, and getting pushback or bewilderment from companies like, "Why are we doing this?" Right to what you're doing today. What would you say are the biggest changes that have occurred? I mean, obviously things have evolved, right? And there yeah. are more women in the workplace, more women in leadership positions. There's not as much of I guess people scratching their heads about that. But what, what do you think are the biggest changes that have occurred over the last 30 years? Well, to me, beyond the demographic changes, the biggest changes are three. First of all, women have much more confidence and much more awareness that they have something to contribute. And that has been something that I've watched grow. Uh, secondly, men are much more willing and interested in being allies and supporters of women. That was really very rare back in... 1990 and pretty much throughout the, the 90s. So there wasn't really an awareness about that. And that is also uh, reflected in the commitment that leadership has to the development of women's talent. That is something that has been ongoing and changing rapidly. The third thing I think that's happened that I've witnessed is there's much more solidarity among women as supporters of one another. Uh, back in the early days, in the 1990s, when uh, the companies, you know, would have the beginnings of women's networks, what later became known as employee resource groups. The senior women didn't, for the most part, with a few exceptions, want to have anything to do with it. They saw it as undermining their own position as leaders. That was very common. And that's not true at all today. And so I just see much more solidarity. To me, one of the most significant things about Me Too as a movement is that it created a lot of solidarity. Many women 
came forward with things that they didn't want to talk about because they saw other women getting slammed for doing that. So that has, I think, contributed also to the increasing solidarity. So those are all those are all very, very positive trends. Yeah, solidarity is such an important word there because it's very difficult to step out on your own. But when you see other people doing it, then you're more willing to speak up and be vulnerable and and talk about your experience and and bring awareness to something. And uh, it helps to have books from people like you who are (laughs) are bringing these things to the surface. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Speaking of books and of, you know, having men on your side, right? You wrote this latest book with Marshall Goldsmith. I did. How did that come about? That came about, um, Marshall had written a wonderful book, which I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar with, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which was about the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful people as they seek to move to a higher level. And uh, it was a wonderful book. And I was working with the idea in some of the workshops that I was doing with, with women after about 2012. And what was very obvious to me was that even though the template, the idea that behaviors that served you well could become problematic as you moved higher, even though that template was exactly right when it came to women. Some of the behaviors, many of the behaviors that Marshall focused on were clearly drawn from his very male-centric client base as a coach. He coaches mostly male CEOs. So I went to him, we've been friends and colleagues for over 25 years. I went to him and said, you know, this is such a great idea, but I don't think the way you phrased it is always being that helpful to women. Let's look at some of the behaviors that are more likely to get in women's ways. Marshall had things in there like learn to apologize, you know, and as we know, many women have no trouble apologizing. Right. A lot of men might have trouble with that, but but a lot of women don't, right? You know, women will open the door and say, I'm sorry, and say it to the door or whatever, you know. Women and Canadians, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yes, Canadians do. So I said, you know, let's, let's look at some of the behaviors most likely to get in women's ways and adapt your template and put that out there. And with Marshall's support, we got a fantastic contract and lots of attention. And the book has, you know, become a bestseller in unlikely places like Japan. We sold mm. Mongolian and Indonesian and all these Turkish, all these rights that I've, I've never sold in the past. And so we're really uh, going great guns with it since it came out in April 2018. That's cool. And do you yeah. think 
obviously having Marshall's name on there is going to be helpful anywhere because he's, he's a legend in the industry. Yeah. Um, but thinking about a book like that becoming published and popular in, you know, male dominated societies like Japan and, you know, developing nations, was it helpful to have his name on there? Do you think that played a big part in it? I think it, it certainly played a part in getting a lot of attention, not so much from the media, but from companies in Japan, I was fortunate, we were fortunate to have Nikkei as our publisher. And one of the things that's been interesting to me is that the, some of the companies that, uh, countries that have acquired this are bringing me over to do media launches and tours. I'm going to Brazil, I'm going to Turkey, I, I did cool. Japan, I may go to Korea. It's pretty interesting. So having Marshall's name means that considerable resources more than I would probably have brought, got poured into the promotion of the book. And then he's also a genius at, uh, at promotion. Yeah. So that was, that was very, very helpful as well. Well, that's great. And I don't know, you know, Marshall Goldsmith, but credit to him to listen to you and say, oh, yeah. you know, you're right. This is more male centered. So let's write something that will be helpful to women. Yeah. He went for the idea right away. He thought it was terrific. That's great. So I want to dig into that, to the book a little bit. What are some of the biggest habits that hold women back in business? Okay, I think that um, there, and they sort of fall in a couple buckets, but there's a whole series of habits around being reluctant to claim your achievements, feeling that, you know, if you talk about your achievements, people are going to perceive you as too aggressive and too assertive. And as a result, another behavior in the book we really focus on is expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions without having to bring attention to them uh, yourself. I've been aware of this for quite some years. I did a study for a group of partnership firms and I interviewed women partners. You know, what are the women who are coming up? What are they best at? And where is their biggest challenge? And what I heard over and over was what they're best at is doing high quality work. What they're worst at is making sure that especially senior leaders understand the quality of their work and their contribution. And when I'd ask the women, are you good at that? The women coming up, most of them would say, no, I'm not good at it. I, you know, if I have to act like that jerk down the hall to get noticed around here, no, thank you. Oh, you know, which is a very either or way of looking at it. It's, you know, or I believe if I do great work, people should notice, which, you know, is true, but it rarely happens on its own. It's also making a connection by saying, if I speak up about what I did, therefore I am a jerk like this guy that I don't respect. That's correct. And it's not true. It's right. not true. You know, that person is probably a jerk on their own. Right. And, you know, they don't need they don't need your help. And yeah. so, yeah, it's you need to find a way to do that. It's very important for, as you know, career development. You've got to find a way to shine and get recognized for what your contributions are doesn't mean you're taking it away from other people, et cetera. So I was very aware of that. And a corollary of that is another uh, behavior that I also hear, especially men who are in things like engineering or accounting struggle with, but there are some differences. And that is the behavior uh, or habit of overvaluing expertise, really feeling I'm going to come into a new job, I'm going to keep my head down. I am going to work as hard as I can. And that will be sufficient. Once I've done that, once I really understand this job, I can start building allies and, you know, sort of go more public with it. And 
I hear from men, you know, since the book came out, I've heard right away from men that, you know, again, maybe engineer or in sciences, that this is an issue uh, for them as well. So it's a human behavior. I mean, the behaviors in the book are really human behaviors. They're not just women's behaviors, but they are the behaviors most likely to hold women back. And and yeah. one difference with women on this overvaluing expertise and men that I find is that even men who overvalue expertise don't let it keep them from applying for jobs that they actually are qualified for, but may right. not be able to tick all the boxes off. Yeah, It does with women. I was doing, you appreciate this. I was doing a program at a huge uh, healthcare company a number of uh, months ago in Chicago. And there we had about 300 women there, women leaders. And one of the women, so we're talking about, you know, the applying for jobs and articulating what you've done in a way that you could get it. And one of the women raised her hand and said, well, how many, um, you know, if there are six items, uh, how many do you think you need to have in order to apply for a job? Which is an unanswerable question. So as I was kind right. of uh, stammering around it, the male champion who was the head of all North American operations raised his hand and said, listen, he said, the job that led to this job, he said, I really wanted it. He said, when I got the qualifications for it, he said, I looked at them and I thought, okay, there's six. I have one. I'm going to go for it. He was just able to articulate why he would be good at learning those other five. So the women in the room, there was kind of a collective drawing in of the breath. Are you kidding me? This guy went for the job when he had one out of one out of six. But I, you know, I think that's one of the many ways that women let this uh, habit hold them back. Well, and you also mentioned this, uh, this habit of, you know, thinking I've got to become an expert and then I'll go out and and network and build my connections when in my experience, I'm big into connecting and relationships. Right. I think those will overcome skills, expertise, experience any day because someone is going to likely try to hire their friend over going through tons of resumes you know, online from people they don't know. And sometimes that creates obviously bias and, and problems. But for yeah. the most part, people want to hire and do business with people that they know and relationships are going to help you get places faster. The most successful people I see come into a new position and their first question is, who do I need to know around here in order to make sure this is a success? Right. So they are building allies from day one and developing their expertise. Now, I understand why this is hard for, for certain women because they may have had their expertise questioned constantly along the way. So they feel that the way they're going to become successful is to really assure that they develop their expertise and they don't want to be seen almost until they feel that they've got, they've got that down. Yeah. You mentioned one of the big challenges for women is needing to speak up more, the habit of, of thinking that their work is going to speak for itself. And I think yes. by John or Blank now, Sheryl Sandberg famously wrote about this in Lean In, right? Yes. And I'm wondering, are you finding this is changing generationally? I feel like I've heard that millennial women and even getting into Gen Z don't have as much of a problem speaking up and talking about the things they've done. Yeah, I hear that from millennial women. I think that they've gotten the message that this sort of double bind is not doing them any favors. I mean, women often articulate the idea of a double bind. Well, when I don't talk about myself, I don't get noticed. When I talk about myself, I'm identified as too ambitious or too aggressive or too much all about me. Mm. And I do hear this from millennial women, that they're less 
say, hobbled perhaps by that fear of how they're perceived. You know, one of the things that's important to consider is that people get used to behaviors that you exhibit if you stand behind them. I remember once, uh, some years ago, I was in a meeting and I walked out of the meeting and the most senior guy in the meeting turned to me and he said, well, you certainly don't have any trouble expressing an opinion, do you? In a very sarcastic, pretty nasty way. And I said, no, I, I don't. And so he, he was surprised at that. You know, I didn't apologize. I didn't back off. Right. I just said, no, I don't. But it wasn't offensive either. Yeah. So I heard him about uh, a month later talking to somebody else. And he said, you know what I like about Sally? She really stands behind what she says. Uh, she's not afraid to speak her mind. So yeah. all I had to do was give him time to get accustomed to that. What I did not need to do was take that deeply to heart and start questioning whether I should have responded in that way. And, and that's part of what I try to spread to women. And um, I do believe that what I've noticed is women come now to understanding of certain of these things much earlier than they did 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago. So I think we are seeing a generational shift and it's very positive. Yeah. As one of the other habits, I would imagine a habit would be internalizing some of this stuff too much, right? Hearing something like that and then getting, you know, really stuck in, well, you know, does he respect me and should I speak up again and that sort of thing? You know, how do you help people with that? Exactly. Well, that's ruminating. That's what we call in the book, uh, the habit of ruminating. And it's a very hard one to get over. But what you really have to do is learn to forgive yourself for being human and and also not have a shame around the fact that people may question what you do. Find people that you can talk to and be honest with and say, you know, I really feel like I did myself no favors with this guy. And, you know, most of the time people will say pretty much so, so what? And I was doing a program with Marshall recently and he said something that, uh, that sort of encapsulates this. He said, you know, all the research uh, shows that women are perceived of by their direct reports and colleagues as better leaders than men. He said, so the good news for women is they're better leaders. The good news for men is they don't care. <laughs> and so there's a little bit, a little bit of loosening up. Uh, myself, one of the things I did, because uh, I can tend to be a ruminator, and working with someone like Marshall uh, has been very helpful for me, a male colleague who is not. Yeah. And I was in a, a meeting with him. Or actually, we were working on the book, and he got a phone call from his assistant, which he never took when we were working on the book. And I heard him, and he was saying, oh, I forgot to call Dr. Kim. Okay, uh, uh, all right, I'll, I'll call him later. And he hung up the phone from his assistant, and he looked at me, and he said, oh, well, I knew who Dr. Kim was. You know, he was the CEO of the World Bank. And I was thinking, whoa, if I forgot to call the CEO of the World Bank, I wouldn't be saying, oh, well. Oh, well. So I came home. I thought about it as I, you know, we were in Marshall's apartment in New York. I thought about it as I came home on the train. And when I got to my desk, I put a big banner over my desk that said basically, oh, well. Oh, well. And when something gets screwed up, I really walk over, I look at that banner. I think of him and I say, oh, well, and let it go. And it's hard. But, you know, like any behavioral change, it becomes a habit. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I have developed that habit. I think that, you know, ruminating and getting caught up in mistakes or bad things that happen, even they're outside of our control, that's something that everybody does, men and women, right? Yes. And through my own practice of meditation and mindfulness over the last three years consistently, I've developed that that kind of mindset of, oh, well, as well. Obviously, we have to learn from our mistakes. Yes. When things happen that are outside of my control, exactly. oh, well, you know, let's move on. And because there's no point in sitting there ah, getting all upset about it, just take the next action that you that you need to take. Yes. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. You work with companies, right? And I imagine a lot of them are looking for ways to help women move into more leadership positions. What's the biggest things for companies that is the roadblock that's holding them back from getting more women into leadership positions and, and how can they change that? Well, I think three things. First of all, some of it is cultural. And cultural includes things like old boys networks that exist or people favoring working, you know, what you expressed earlier, people favoring working with people that they're familiar working with. And so it's not even necessarily unconscious bias, which is a concept I have some issues with. It can just be how things, how things are. So I think those kinds of cultural things and, and, you know, also in, in culture is certainly expectations that, you know, women shouldn't be too ambitious or, things like that. So I think that there are, there are definitely cultural expectations um, that you need to bring aware, awareness to. Some of it is structural. The workplace was indeed designed by men for men, and we're still struggling with a bit of that industrial heritage and how do we figure out, and this is an issue increasingly now for in the younger generations, men and women, how do we create a workplace that people really can make a contribution? Mm. And I think, you know, it's interesting One of the ways in which, to me, this structure really shows up is in in companies, the presumptions about what a career path should be shaped like. And one of the things is women will often take some years out of the workplace and then come back. I read the most fascinating statistic recently that among knowledge workers, uh, this is a U.S. uh, Labor Department figure. Among knowledge workers, the fastest growing segment of the workforce is women over 55. Hmm. And the fastest growing subgroup of the workforce is women over 75. Really? These are knowledge workers later in their career. So more moving into leadership roles. And there's actually a decline in male participation after 55, again, among knowledge workers. So I think what to me that's demonstrating is 
you know, career paths don't need to look the way they used to look. People make contributions longer. They're part of the workforce longer. And we need to think about leadership in that way. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I think about that a lot. And in fact, just this week as we're recording this, I saw that uh, Josh Burson wrote a, a piece about uh, how the fastest growing segment as a percentage of the workforce is uh, people over 55 because they're staying in the workforce longer. They're not retiring like they used to. Yes, People have a different sense of the word retirement. And I think what you're talking about yes. is the fact that a lot of women take time off in the middle of their career, right? Whether it's a few months or a few years because they're having children right. or they take on quote unquote lighter roles, right? An internal role they used to be in consulting or out in the field and now they're right. taking on something that's less travel but then their kids get older and they want to get back into it. Are companies getting better at managing those transitions? And, and because you've got essentially a really valuable resource in a woman that has you know, the pedigree and the experience to, that maybe took a step back for a little while and you want to be able to leverage that, right? To grow your company. That's exactly right. And I think this is something that companies, some companies are doing a fairly good job with it. A lot of companies still don't quite get that. They still have this very industrial idea of what a career path is supposed to look like. So that's that's a structural impediment. And by the way, in terms of what Josh was talking about, virtually all that growth in over 55 is coming from women. It's not just a more generalized trend. But so I said that there were three things, cultural and structural. And a lot of the culture is also around, you know, how talent development is done. There are lots of, you know, policies, procedures, ways of assessing performance, et cetera, that come under the cultural bucket. But I think the third is really some of these internal barriers that Marshall and I have been looking at in how women rise. And there are ways that women have continued to hold themselves back. And one of the reasons that I wanted to publish this book is that those can inhibit women from having an influence and moving into leadership roles. And the more women have an influence at a leadership level, the more change we're going to be able to make in terms of culture and structure. So that's why I think it's really, really important. Yeah. What did you mean when you said that the workplace was designed by men for men. I mean, I think a lot of people might look at it and say, what do you mean? We work nine to six or whatever. Anybody can do that, man or woman. Um, I think a lot of men need to hear what you mean by that. Well, if you go back to the, say, looking the post-industrial, the, the, I mean, in the industrial era, it was one thing, but, but the sort of post-industrial era after World War II, when the modern corporation, as we know, it really came into crystallized being, The expectation was that your career path would look a certain way. You would be totally dedicated to the company for a period of time. And life would basically be divided into three segments, uh, adult life, learning, work, and retirement. And so, you know, it was very sort of industrial and cookie cutter and one size fits all. And part of that presumption is in those 40 years in which you are contributing your labor to the workforce, someone is at home taking care of the kids. I mean, that's just, you know, it's a complete division of labor. And that's no longer true. And yet certain policies and expectations in organizations still reflect that. So that's really what I meant. The presumption was, I mean, I I recently reread uh, William White's classic book, The Organization Man. And it was so fascinating because it talked about executives and their wives, 
the role of women in this book was solely as wife. And the absolute presumption was that leadership was a male activity. And William Wright was a terrific writer. I mean, it's not like he was unenlightened. He was just reflecting a reality that was so pervasive at the time. Right. That's the way it was. Yeah. And having a woman or someone at home to take care of all the home activities, obviously very important. And it, it reminds yes. me that I recently interviewed Karen Tornight, who is the chief diversity inclusion officer at EY. And she was telling me that one of the biggest challenges to deal with is that uh, millennial generation has the highest percentage of dual income earners. Yes. And so you've got you know two careers in a household and no one managing the house. And how do you manage everything that goes on when you have children at home and everything and both sides are running a career? It's different than the way things used to be. And you know, how do you decide whose career takes priority over the other if someone has to move around? I mean, these are challenges that people haven't had to face in the past. I think so too. And you know, in a way, as I've thought about it, and I live up in the Hudson Valley, so I'm surrounded by dairy farms and, mm. and old apple orchards. But what we see is the way you have this sort of farm couples uh, making their decisions about the division of labor at every stage. And I think that in order to, you know, survive with intact families, the next generation, we're going to have more a kind of an attitude of, and, and we're seeing this. It's not like I'm telling them they need to, they're doing it you know, well, we're going to favor his career for these years and then my career for these years. And, you know, you're going to have to make those decisions. So couples will be really working shoulder to shoulder to design what their work and what their family looks like, rather than in the industrial era when you would just kind of slot into what was expected. Right. Yeah. And I've definitely seen that among my friends. I've heard people say things like, well, the last move was for my husband's job, so we're doing this for mine. Or it was for my wife's job, and so now it's my turn. And they kind of take turns. Uh, My wife and I are developing a life where we both hopefully work on our own and from home, so we don't have to move around for anyone else. Um, But everyone gets to design. That's the cool thing, design their life how they want to run it. I want to go back to something else you said, which is that you have an issue with unconscious bias, or at least Uh you there. So what is your issue with unconscious bias? You know, I think that many companies decide they need to do something in terms of their leadership and they don't know what to do. And in a way, the only thing out there is so-called unconscious bias training. And the idea behind most unconscious bias training, as I've seen, read about it and heard from my clients, is essentially you work with people to try to raise awareness of where their implicit biases lay. Now, the idea, I guess, is then once they recognize that, they'll be able to somehow automatically behave differently. They're saved. They're changed. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. They're saved. I had my my moment. And in my view, and I think I could speak for a number of colleagues, Marshall included, people, in my experience working with people, people tend to change their attitudes and ideas based on new ways of acting that get them different results. So I think it is much more effective rather than trying to dig down and identify where people may have biases to teach them behaviors, certain behaviors that will get a different result. Often, I find this working with men when I do 
leadership groups on building a more inclusive culture, you'll find men of great goodwill who have no awareness that a certain thing they're saying, way they're speaking, a sign on their desk, you know, be brief, be brilliant, be gone. Oh, really? You think that could be intimidating? Yeah, I think that could be intimidating. You know, you'll hear stuff like this. So there's some really easy tweaks you can make in terms of your behavior to begin to get different results. And then maybe your attitude will change. But I think we've gotten overly concerned with rooting out certain attitudes rather than focusing on how do these manifest as behaviors? Let's keep it simple and not try to reconstruct the human personality. And I think it creates a certain amount of of backlash because most people don't automatically say, thank you for pointing out that I've been a jerk (laughs) in my life. You know, it's just not a natural human response. So so I hear a lot of that. And I, I hear from clients that they'll roll out these extensive training and they don't really have a real impact. So I'm not arguing against it. I don't think it's a terrible thing. I just think we need to look at it more broadly and that a behavioral approach would probably be more effective. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I have talked to people about this and I I look at it from my own perspective that even though I'm very aware of this stuff, talk to people all the time, I catch myself on my own biases because yeah. it's natural. It's part of our personality, right? I think Malcolm Gladwell has written about this. Yes. People have written about it. That you can't just get rid of it by going through a tree. Right. You're like, I'm not going to be biased. Exactly. And I think, you know, what you and I were talking about before when you were talking about mindfulness and meditation, the one of the things we really understand is that the brain changes as you practice new behaviors. Mm. And that that's, that, you know, that old idea that you, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's not really true. There is, at least with human beings, there's that adult neuroplasticity, but the way you change your thinking, the way you stop ruminating is really by practicing a different kind of behavior. And then that builds sort of the neurons that enable you that start to change how your thinking is. Yeah. Uh, You work with a lot of companies out there and executives and people in talent development. Uh, Are there any other trends that you're noticing that are changing how people work beyond what we've already discussed? Yeah, I think that we're getting more awareness of some of the cost of constantly requiring people to be, you know, in touch with their phones, et cetera, that we're beginning to see the downside of that. People are seeing that for themselves. There's a lot of writing about it. And I think that, you know, a greater awareness of presence and your ability to be present for the moment, for the person in front of you, for your task, and for your purpose and ultimate aspiration. That's really how people perceive someone as having leadership presence and constantly being, you know, checking your phone, whatever, responding doesn't serve that. And in fact, there's evidence that it's sort of unwiring some of our capacity to be present. So I think we're going to see a lot of movement in terms of that. You know, Tom Peters talks about that the ad, one of the things about the advent in AI is going to be that it's going to put a greater and greater emphasis on our human qualities and our interaction and characteristics, for example, like empathy, which it's pretty hard to imagine programming into AI. And we know that 
empathy really only operates empathy as an example mm-hmm. when you are present and focused so that anything that is inherently distracting or creates a habit of distraction, which is, I think, where we are, we're going to begin to recognize that that's problematic and organizations yeah. are going to stop requiring people to be so in touch. Uh, I, I like that. I hope that is the case. And uh, I've said it before. This is a whole other topic. I've said it before in this yes. podcast. I'll say it again that I think in the future of work as AI takes over and robots do more and more things, that it will be human connections and empathy that will be the most valuable skill in the future of work. And so if you don't have that, or your people don't have that, you'll think about developing that. Um, Speaking of developing, for people who work in talent development, our primary audience here who are looking to, you know, help their workforce improve and particularly help uh, women move into more leadership roles, uh, what's one or two more things they should be thinking about doing? Well, I really think that that creating, one of the things I notice a lot of uh, people doing, I hear about this all the time, people are creating uh, book clubs where they're really going through this book. And I've heard it, you know, they did it. Certainly Sheryl Sandberg started this off where you start an actual book club where you're studying something that has a very, not only a positive message, but very actionable, concrete ideas in terms of how to do uh, greater talent development for women. And I see this as, as really a trend. Again, I think Sheryl Sandberg's with her Lean and Circle got this started, but I'm hearing about this Again, all over the world, people we're using How Women Rise. Doesn't have to be How Women Rise, but it's a really great format for doing it. We're using it as kind of a text that we're studying so that we can help one another to identify behaviors that may be getting in one another's way and work together in order to address those. And that goes aligned, that's aligned, I think with one of the things we'll see much more, much more, is an emphasis on peer coaching. Peer coaching to me is one of the most underutilized or even recognized resources uh, that talent development has. And when peer coaching is done in an intentional way, people can make tremendous, tremendous progress. I've uh, been a big advocate of that for some years. I've benefited from it enormously myself. And uh, I'd like to, to see more of that. And I think that's, that's going to be a trend. And when you say peer coaching, how is that best set up? I haven't seen a lot of that done. Okay. Peer coaching is best set up when you're, you've got a kind of, I mean, I'm thinking of how it's done around How Women Rise, just as an example, because sure. uh, there are many ways you can do this. So in How Women Rise, what I see people doing, and I've been working with some people to develop this, is you know, the participants will develop, you know, identify, say, two behaviors they want to work on in the next six months. And then they begin to create questions that a peer will ask them to demonstrate, you know, whether they're working on it, what they're doing to work on it, et cetera. They'll develop these questions themselves. And then they set up with a peer, you know, a kind of an accountability session where that peer say, well, you know, okay, you said you were going to work on bringing more visibility to what your contributions are. And you, you decided that the place you were going to start was by drawing attention to your involvement in this initiative X. You know, this week, 
what did you do to support that? Or how, you know, maybe did you backslide? So really holding one another to account in very, very specific ways, not sort of general, you know, like, how is this week? You know, how are you doing? Are you doing better? Not that kind of stuff, but really having these kind of daily questions, weekly questions so that you can hold one another to account. Coaching is such a powerful tool, but it's an expensive uh, proposition. So peer coaching to me, that's guided and where there's plenty of debriefing and and kind of professionally overseen is one of a very, very useful way of spreading those benefits to all levels. Yeah, I've seen the power of that as well. And of course, I'm a big fan of coaching, whether it's professional coach or training your people on how to coach managers to coach their direct reports and people to coach each other. And like you said, check in on specific things. You're reading the book together. Hey, we learned about XYZ. We learned about the importance of speaking up and you know, talking about the things we've accomplished, have you been doing that lately? You said you were going to do X, Y. You know, have you right. done that? And holding each other accountable to help push each other to succeed more. Um, have you built or thought about creating a training around this to, to bring into <laughs> yeah. companies? I mean, I, I think that you know, people are probably going to hopefully read this book together, but they'll probably be looking for more. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm involved in now. And in fact, I'm doing a big train the trainer in uh, Tokyo on uh, September 2nd. So I'm going to be developing the materials for that and then looking at, at how we can begin to adapt that and you know cool. develop certification and training because I think there's just so much value for both coaches and trainers sure. in this. And in also helping people, you know, with the peer coaching, it can be very informal. You know, I'm trying to get better at speaking up in meetings you know, you're going to be in this meeting. Would you just take a look at me, you know, just see if you feel I look comfortable doing this is what I'm contributing of value. If you'd give me any feedback on that, that would be really helpful. So just getting in the habit of engaging other people in your own development has a tremendous potential. Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea of bringing the book to life in a training. I run a uh, a workshop that is based on the book Multipliers by Liz Weissman that was co-created with her. And I was just running it this week. And I love bringing the concepts in that book to life and seeing the light bulbs that go off and how people change their behaviors. So I look yeah. forward to that. And, uh, you know, maybe interested in getting certified if you allow men. <laughs> I'm sure, of course. Yeah, that's uh, great. Right now, I'm just doing the workshop myself. So it's a sure. little tough to keep up with demand. Yeah, no doubt. That's awesome. Okay. So uh, the book, uh, of course, is again, the How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. And uh, Sally, how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out or maybe do work with you? Sure. Uh, my website, sallyhelgeson.com, has a contact button. Uh, my email is sally at sallyhelgeson.com or connect with me through LinkedIn where I'm, I'm active. Awesome. LinkedIn is the place to be. I'm active on there as well every day. So as I usually say to my listeners, if you're not connected with me on LinkedIn, please reach out and connect. Please reach out and connect with Sally and follow her as well. And uh, Sally, thank you for coming on and sharing some of your experience and your wisdom and your advice with our audience. I really loved it. And I think our audience did as well. So thank you again. Thank you, Andy. It was a real pleasure. All right. Take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. 
Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.